I'm Esther Alma. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR, Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. This week on The Spin, reimagining resistance in the era of mass incarceration. In part one, one on one with Marissa Alexander, intimate partner violence survivor, single shot fired in self-defense, convicted with a 20-year sentence, then house arrest, and now finally free. Plus, escaping violence, entering incarceration, black and brown women and girls behind bars. In part two, locked up, locked out. America, the incarceration nation, black and brown men in America. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Marissa Alexander, Asha Bendele, and Lisa Jesse Peterson. Marissa Alexander is a mother, a survivor of domestic violence, and the creator of the Marissa Alexander Project. Marissa has just been released after serving five years in jail and under house arrest after an August 2010 incident in which she fired a warning shot at her abusive husband in self-defense. Asha Bendele is an award-winning journalist, an author, editor, and activist. Asha has written and published six books. Asha is Director of Communications for National Cares and Director of the Advocacy Grants Program for Drug Policy Alliance. Lisa Jesse Peterson is an artist activist working with incarcerated populations. She is a poet, playwright, and actress. Lisa has worked with detained boys and girls at Rikers Islands, with the Department of Corrections, with the Board of Education as a GED instructor. And Lisa was recently featured in 13th, the Oscar-nominated documentary about the history of incarceration in America by award-winning African-American filmmaker Ava DuVernay. Lisa is author of the upcoming book, All Day, A Year of Love and Survival, Teaching Incarcerated Kids at Rikers Island. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hi. Marissa Alexander. In 2010, she was a new mother to a baby girl. She had been home for just 10 days, and according to Marissa, her former husband was a man who had subjected her to violence. He choked me, he uh, pushed me forcefully into the tub, um, he pushed me so hard into the closet that I hit my head against the wall and I kind of passed out for a second. For those incidences, he was put on probation. In a 2010 deposition, Marissa's former husband said, and I quote, I got five baby mamas and I put my hand on every last one of them, except one. The way I was with women, they was like they had to walk on eggshells around me. You know, they never knew what I was thinking or what I might do. Hit them, push them, unquote. He would later recant these words. In August 2010, Marissa fired a single warning shot after she says she was attacked by her now former husband. No one was hit or hurt by her shot. 
She explains what happened in the lead-up to her firing that warning shot. He managed to get the door open, and that's when he, he strangled me. He put his, his hands around my neck. I thought that I was going to have to protect myself. I, Were you thinking you might have to shoot him? Yeah, I did. If it, if it came to that, he saw my weapon at my side. And when he saw it, he was even more upset. And that's when he threatened to kill me. Marissa defended her actions by invoking the Florida Stand Your Ground Law. It entitles you to defend yourself if you feel threatened in your own home. She was arrested and charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. The Stand Your Ground defense was rejected. In August of 2012, Marissa was sentenced to 20 years in prison under Florida's harsh minimum mandatory sentencing policies. Her story gained national attention and shed light on harsh minimum mandatory sentencing policies, the controversial Stand Your Ground law, and intimate partner violence issues. In 2013, an appellate court overturned her case as a result of faulty jury instructions. In November 2013, Marissa was released on bail but had to stay on house arrest. After a long journey fighting for her freedom, Marissa accepted a plea agreement of three years and completed her sentence of 65 days in the Duval County Jail. After she was released, she had to have an ankle monitor and was under strict probation supervision. Finally, in January 2017, she was released. Marissa Alexander is now free. Marissa Alexander, you are free. It is good to hear you on this telephone. First of all, how are you doing? How are you? I'm doing well. It's glad to be heard. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So first taste of freedom, no ankle monitor, the ability to move around as you choose, as you want. What was the first thing you did when you weren't kind of hampered by the ankle monitor? Well, that night I actually went to my sister's house. She had gotten a new place, so I met her and my mother over there, and me and my mom had the coast. My sister's pregnant, so she's getting ready to have a baby boy any day now. So I spent that first night after midnight with them for a couple of hours. Oh, that was wonderful. Good to be back with them, family. Mm -hmm. When you look back over the time in prison, what for you was the toughest moment? The toughest day? The toughest time for me actually was being away from my, my family, my loved ones, specifically my kids. But the the most, you know, really tough one was being away from my baby girl because at that time I had no way of knowing what was going on with her, any connection with her because he had taken her and did not let her see my family or anything. So for the entire time that I was incarcerated, I didn't know, know where she was or how she was doing or anything. And that was the hardest part of that journey, not being able to know what's going on. So I had to disconnect myself from her in order it was a survival thing. So talk about the emotional toll of that, to have to disconnect from your little one when she was only 10 days old when the incident occurred in the first place. Initially, when it happened, my main concern was like making sure that I would be able to get back to her. And so once I got incarcerated a couple of months afterwards and I no longer was able to know how she was doing, the best way for me to be able to survive and not go crazy was to literally tell myself that I only had two kids. That was the only way I could get through it. And so from an emotional standpoint, I didn't really deal with that until 
I got out or until I actually was able to connect with her after I was convicted and sent to prison that I didn't see her again until she was three. So, I, you know, it kind of helped then, but I didn't deal with the totality of that until afterwards. And so you, you come out and you're back with this little girl and you're developing that new mama, new baby routine. Did the, the kind of the toll of the disconnection, did, have you started to feel that? And, and what is that like for you? I would journal a lot about it so I could put my paper, you know, my feelings on paper. Coming home, you know, right prior to, once I got convicted, I had already been in pretrial jail or whatever for, you know, almost a year and a half, almost two years at that point. So once I got to prison, you know, for whatever reason, he did allow me to see her, but my best friend, you know, was, it was she was adamant about saying she needs to know her mother. So that's when we started to you know, have a, a a connection. It still wasn't necessarily a bond. She knew me by name, but we didn't necessarily have a bond. When I came home, I had to allow things to just happen naturally and not force upon her what I was feeling all those years. I had to let that come naturally. And it was hard because she knew me by mom as far as title, but that bond necessarily wasn't there. So you had to let that organically come together. It makes me think about how little, when it comes to incarceration, we think about the emotionality of severing ties and what that means for mothers and their children. And so you said you journaled a lot. When you think back in terms of what you put down on paper, talk a bit about that experience of being incarcerated and your day-to-day kind of negotiating that space. When you're in pre-trial, it's a different type of environment. For this, And what I mean by that is typically people coming through pre-trial haven't been sentenced yet. So a lot of them are in and out or, you know, trying to figure out what sentence they're going to get and fighting their case. So during that time, because that was completely outside of my element, it was culture shock for one. And then at that time, I was like, okay, this is not happening. And okay, I can't deny that it is. Let me start to figure out what purposes it's supposed to serve. So that was during pretrial. Afterwards, once I got into prison, it's a different environment because by that time, everybody lives differently because they know a day-to-day routine because they know their time. So everybody's just trying to do their time. And so at that point, it was a different part of the journey at that point because I was no longer anticipating, per se, what was going to happen. I was now like, okay, this is where I am. I know what's going to happen. I know what I'm fighting for. I have to wait for it to happen. So it it was a different type of journey. So I journaled differently, if that makes sense. How shocked and angry were you when you first heard that 20 years sentence? Let me be really frank with you. Going into it, I, and, and you know, most people don't know this, I go into this in my book. I, I knew that it was going to come. I didn't want it to come. I knew I had to press forward in faith, but I knew it was, going, it was coming because I also believed that it was bigger than me way before you all even heard about my name. It, it just didn't make sense. And from that perspective, I started to see what we are now talking about now is the criminalization and victims and and the prison industrial complex being in the actual belly of it, in the weeds, is when I really was like, okay, you know, it started to kind of come together for me. So I always believed that I would not stay there. I just didn't know how long it would work out. But at first, I, I was more completely shocked than any anything. I was angry with the fact that I lost my child the way that I did and that I, I, there wasn't anything that I could do about it. And so those were the things that kind of made me more angry than anything else. But I knew that I had this journey to go on. I just didn't know, you know, what it was going to look like now, you know, up until the point that everything started to come out. I think when people hear about incarceration 
And when we think about the injustice of it and we think about the activism of it, I think that the day-to-day reality of what it is is a real challenge. And I wonder if you could talk about what it meant for you. Were you in fear day-to-day? Was it mundane day-to-day? What was that for you? From the women's environment, I can speak from my perspective where I was. It it wasn't a fear type of, of thing. It was just more or less tolerating what I had never had to tolerate before. Being in an environment where I'm trying to understand what purpose is this serve. So then you start to see how fortunate I was and how I really feel like God's plan was for me to just kind of see what was really going on and then try to figure out what exactly was I supposed to do with that. It was hard for me. The adjustment was hard. The pe- dealing with the restrictions and the people and, the, 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 you know, the other inmates and being in somebody's space. It was very difficult at first. I internalized a lot of it, which is why the reason why I journal. But at some point, you know, I just got to the point and I was like, okay, I'm going to have to figure out a way to express it, which is journal, but also figure out what purpose am I supposed to get out of this? Because this is not in vain. So I had to take a shift. And I, you know, I really wanted to use that time to figure out me, myself, and, and be in a different space when I got out, if that makes sense. Talk a bit about some of the other women you met in the time that you were there and the kinds of connections you made to kind of help yourself get through in addition to the journaling. It's one thing to like turn on your news, right? And you hear about these different situations that happen and you're like, oh man, that's too bad. And you go on about your life. It's a whole nother thing to be sitting in there and you see a system that is broken. You see a system that there is a huge disparity in how defendants are treated based on the color of their skin. You see how money plays an issue in the way defendants are treated. You see so many different things. And then you also get the opportunity to see how society has failed so many different people and how they haven't had an opportunity from the start and how homes are broken. And it starts sometimes with domestic violence and all those type of things. And a lot of the people being in foster homes and and then it kind of makes sense to me what was really going on. And then you're dealing with another aspect because I'm just a thinker. I'm like, okay, now we're dealing with some of the kids of the crack epidemic and those kids and the mental issues that they have. I was just, you know, kind of putting things together and it was interesting to see at that level. What was the lasting memory you took in terms of the women that you met and what you saw as you walked away from that environment? But it could be anybody. You know, I think people tend to put themselves in a position where they're like, oh, that could never, that could never be me, or oh, those are the bad people that made those decisions, so they deserve, a lot of people are there that should not be there. A lot of people are there because, you know, they are a victim of a circumstance that they perhaps did not have anything to do with. Some of them did. There's people that are there that should be because they do need a timeout. But for the most part, it is not a sense where people, I feel like, should be not have an opportunity for redemption. I met a lot of good women in contact with a few of them. Two of them specifically from a growth standpoint really supported me and helped me grow into like my womanhood. So I think that's the thing that people don't realize that there's redemption and that there's an opportunity and a pathway for people who to come out and be successful if that's something that society wants to, to be you know, part of rather than just locking people up forever. What is interesting in terms of the society in which we live is that so many people have a conditioned response when there's intimate partner violence that ends in some kind of tragedy. And the answer is always, well, why doesn't the woman leave? Why 
didn't she leave? Why didn't she walk? How do you respond to those kinds of questions? I find myself getting asked that particular question all the time. And I always say to them, like, you know, I, I'm not quite sure why I needed to be the one that needed to leave. But I can tell you this. Nobody's, for the most part, most people are no strangers to being into a situation, regardless if it's a relationship or some type of aspect where you're drawn to it and you stay in a lot longer and it's not healthy for you. Then you hear, whether it be drugs, whether it be greed, whether it be lies, whatever it is, my thing just happened to be an unhealthy relationship. And that's kind of how I explain that. You know, if, if your journey wasn't that you had to experience that, more power to you, I'm happy, and, and God bless you. But that was my journey. So you have your other things, whatever they may be, that I don't know about, but we all have those. So I try to put it in that term so that they don't distance themselves from, a oh, that's them and those relationship type thing. It's, it's that, but it's other different things. For me, it was where I was in my life and what was going on with me. And then also put some of that on the abuser. I mean, why do I have to take all the blame for that? And why isn't anybody questioning what was going on with him? What happened in his family? What violence did he have? You know, did he see? So, you know, I like to kind of have those conversations, but I don't mind the questions, though. Myself and another activist from Chicago called Maria Macaba, we both led a campaign called Hashtag 31 for Marissa, where we did exactly that. We actually invited men to explore the specific question. Instead of ever asking, why did the woman leave? We said, why don't you ask men why they perpetrate violence to the extent that they do? Why do they expect that it will be okay? Why do they not expect that there will be consequences for the kind of violence that they perpetuate? And that because of the approach that society takes, you're in danger and consistently perpetuating the same issue again and again and again. And let me just throw some numbers in here, because according to the statistics, three women die every day from intimate partner violence. And the numbers say that among African-American women killed by their partner, almost half of them were killed while they were in the process of leaving the relationship. So the point is that leaving doesn't necessarily make a woman safer. And again, the, the onus needs to be turned around and put on men so men can think. But let's, let's go global and think about it from a global perspective. 35% of women around the world will suffer violence at the hands of their partners. That's according to statistics from the United Nations. Back in 1993, the United Nations created a declaration about the elimination of violence against women. And 24 years later, one in three women experience violence, mostly from someone who is intimate. Let's come to where I'm talking to you from. I'm talking to you from Ghana. And in Ghana, the numbers are actually quite hard to find. And that's because here, the notions of gender make violence really normalized. And this is a horrible example, but there's something here called the Multiple Indicator Cluster Survey. And it was conducted by Ghana Statistical Service back in 2011, released in 2012. 60% of women believe that their husbands are justified in beating their wives. Patriarchy is a global beast. In Britain, there are just under 4,000 women currently in prison. That's compared to 82,000 men, women making up 5% of the detained population at any one time. But the 1980s and the 1990s saw an explosion in the population of women incarcerated in Europe, in North America, and in Australasia. And we're going to head back to the United States and look at how intimate partner violence shows up in those prison numbers 
According to the ACLU, that's the American Civil Liberties Union, nearly 60% of people in women's prisons nationwide and as many as 94% of some women's prisons populations all have a history of physical or sexual abuse or violence before they were incarcerated. So, Marissa, you're, you're part of that 60%. You're also part of the 70% of people in women's prisons who are mothers. And the number of mothers in prison in the United States increased by 122% between 1991 and 2007. So not only are the vast majority of women in women's prisons mothers when they go into prison, but many of them are also the primary caretakers of their children at home. So that means you have 1.3 million children who are affected by women in prison. And that number includes the children at home, just like your baby was at home, when the mother is imprisoned and the babies are either born or raised in prison. So let's bring in Asha Bendele and Lisa Jesse Peterson. Asha, listening to Marissa, your thoughts? Well, first of all, I just can't stress how filled my heart is with joy to be able to listen to you, Marissa, Esther, for you to bring us together here. It was a case that many of us were troubled is not the word by. So to be in this place right now is a, is a good day. You know, I want to echo some of the things that you were saying about the numbers of women in prison because we don't think about it often. I think because of the sheer numbers here in the United States, when we think about the face of who's incarcerated, we think often about black or brown men. But in the last 35 years or so, the female prison population in the U.S. grew by 832 percent, and that is twice as much exactly as it did for the male population. And so, you know, women have really been the targets of that, and no one more so than black women, right? One in 19 black women in this country, America, will be incarcerated during her lifetime, as opposed to one in 45 Latinx women and one in 118 white women. And so when I think about Marissa's case in specific, I think about that, the specific targeting of uh, black women and the labeling of black women as criminals, whether we truly are or not. And I try to imagine Marissa Alexander as a middle-class white mother of three children and what the white feminist movement would have said, that if they knew on record there were all of these incidents in which this person had been violent, not only to Marissa, but to other women, and proclaimed it and was happy about it, that that group of women would have possibly been silent if Marissa had been white and arrested. I cannot imagine that they would have. I can imagine they would have had Angela Corey's you know, head on a stick for doing that. And so I think that we have something to really challenge in ourselves about whether black women have ever even had the right to be mothers, ever had the right to be safe, in this country. I appreciate the way that you framed um, both you, Marissa, and you, Esther, intimate partner violence in which we always challenge the victim and we never challenge the perpetrator. The perpetrator in this case is not just Marissa's former partner, but it's also Angela Corey and the system that would allow a black mother to be separated from her children, the harm that that does to the mother, which we heard so painfully, to think I, I could only imagine I could only have two children. I'm a mother. To hear that, I was breathless breathless to try to imagine that and the harm that it did to that little precious baby girl. Who's going to pay for that? What are the reparations for that? How do we have a social intervention as powerful as what took Marissa away from her babies that's going to ensure a reconciliation process? Because there is nobody who's going to convince me now 
or is going to convince me in 20 years that separating Marissa from a man who was violent to her and her children, really, keeping her away from her children, ever did anything good, made anybody in this country safer. And until we begin to confront this question about what our commitment is to safety for black women, about what our commitment to black women's right to motherhood is in this country, I don't think we're going to move the needle on the dial. And that's the question that I grapple with in my work on a regular basis, and it's a challenge I would put before those who are white and call themselves feminists. Lisa Jesse Peterson, your thoughts? I was just really struck by the, to quote James Baldwin, that the moral monstrosity <laughs> of the system, particularly Angela Corey, to separate this woman, Marissa, from her children and to not hold accountable the actual perpetrator of this violent offense for years against this woman. And the silver lining, if, if there is any, is that I'm so grateful that Marissa is keeping a journal so that we get a testimony because there's so many women who whose voices we will never hear about, whose stories, just like Marissa's and more, that will never get amplified. So I'm just so grateful that in this horrific, unimaginable pain, not just of the pain Marissa endured from her partner and the pain of being separated from her children, and then coupled with the pain of and the assault from the system, that even in all of those complex traumas being hurled at her by no fault of her own, that there was still a resilience and a persistence to journal and to keep a testimony of what she went through so that hopefully other women can be empowered by her, by her story. I'm dumbfounded. Where are the white feminists on this? Why is Angela Corey, why is she still employed? She's no longer the state attorney. She was voted out, and honestly, she was voted out by her own party. That's number one. And I can tell you where, from what I understand, there were very few like, feminist groups from my area, which would be Jacksonville area, that spoke out. I think what we're saying, Marissa, is that there were any number of opportunities for white feminists, people with big voices, who could have said something about your case, and mostly it was a few of us who were on the ground, Esther among them, me, a number of people who were here, but we don't have the audience or the reach, but there was black women who were saying something all the time. And on a basic level of what it means to be a feminist, to know that a woman was assaulted by a known violent perpetrator and to allow, to stand by silently and allow that woman to be separated from her children, to be threatened with 20 years in prison, which is what you were first facing, I indict them all. I charge them all. And I'm glad that Angela Corey was voted out of office, but I feel like she was party to a kidnapping. I'll be frank about it. I think there are criminal charges that she should face. If you had to face them, so does she. And it's just unconscionable to me that you do not have the right to protect your life and the life of your children. And I think that it should also call into question for us when we look at people who are in prison, you know, and we want to separate out some as sort of good prisoners and this one's nonviolent and this one's violent. You had a violent charge, and I think that we have a time to look at, like, what does that really mean? What does it mean when the United States says you have a violent charge and the people were still willing to write off and not include in our criminal justice reforms? We really need to look at these cases because it's really about who this nation has decided was expendable, who this nation decided 
decided could be criminalized. You know, we talk about this generation that came up sort of, you know, post the Reagan era, which is the age you're in, and what plan did America have for black and brown people who were born then? I don't think America ever had a plan for anything except for most to go to prison. We know that they had job expectations job reports that said that black people were unemployed less than we were employed in apartheid South Africa. We know that schools were defunded, so people were not even given the education to be employable. I don't think there was any plan for black people except to incarcerate us going from the 1980s onward. And that's something, too, that we need to discuss. The idea that you could ever be seen as who you are, fully human, in your dignity as a mother, a loving, committed mother who was assaulted by someone and should have gotten the full weight of the protection of your community and your state and your country. To be treated as you did, for me with Angela Corey, the charge is kidnapping. And I'd like to know what they're going to do now to ensure your whole. I don't know what the post-conviction and post-release barriers may be on you. How are we relieving those? And all of the women in a state like Georgia where they've let so many people out of prison, you have more people now under surveillance and controlled in other ways than in an outer air prison. So I don't know what are those things that are visited upon you that need to be relieved. We should talk about that, all of the ways that they control and confine people, even post-incarceration, that you should be relieved from along with so many other people. What is powerful there is I think about Marissa as a now formerly incarcerated, but I, and then I go to... Brescia Meadows, who is a 15-year-old teenage black girl, and Brescia shot and killed her father after she and her mother say their family suffered more than two decades of horrific violence at his hands. So her entire lifetime, and then 10 years before that with his other children and her mother. Brescia shot him with his own gun, one that he had allegedly used to threaten the entire family. So take a listen. Here's her aunt, Sherry Latessa, on WKDN in Cleveland, explaining the extent of the violence, the lack of support, and Russia really making a decision to fight for her life. Just take a listen. He controlled her, and it was like she was in jail. They've all been through it, and nobody in that county that we called would do anything for those kids. She told on him that you tell the kids to tell, and then what happened? Nobody did anything. She told, she did what she was supposed to do, that this was wrong. She even knew it was wrong, what was going on her whole life, and nobody helped her. There is a murder charge against the child. Yeah, and that's ridiculous. She, she, if anything, did it for her mother. She definitely did it for her mother. She said, now, Mom, you're free. So Brescia was arrested and charged with aggravated murder. She was facing life imprisonment. And there were rallies that were held across the United States in Chicago and Boston and Los Angeles. And the rallying cry was free Brescia Meadows. Brescia did what she was supposed to do to get out of interpersonal violence situation. And she was continuously returned to that place of trauma and abuse. The system, which does not work, especially not for black women and girls, and certainly not for gender non-conforming folks and non-binary folks, did what the system typically does. It failed her. They keep not kids in the system. They don't see our children as victims, nor innocent. It's ridiculous to not eat our people. The blue water fighters, our nation divided, 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 divided. Now, Brescia's mother called her a hero 
for freeing the family from violence that had gone on for 20 years and had hospitalized her 15 to 20 times. Brescia's dad's family say the killing was cold and calculated. So Brescia was being held at a detention center in Warren, Ohio, was in solitary confinement on suicide watch. And the recent news is that she's expected to be transferred to a treatment facility. Now, Brescia is one of the 15.5 million children in the United States who are exposed to intimate partner violence. And according to stats from the Free Brescia campaign, a disproportionate number of women and girls are incarcerated for defending themselves and are black. So, Marissa, I mean, I hear you talk about the women that you met and the kinds of women that you are. And I just want you as a mother listening to the story of this young girl who was really fighting for her mother's life and her own life. And I wonder what you would say to her. I would say that I, you know, feel very terrible and and apologize that as a child that you had to make a decision that most grown women can't even make. Putting a child in a position where she has to make the decision for the entire family is, that breaks my heart. You know what I mean? Like, your mom is now calling you, you know, the hero, and she's sitting there, and I'm pretty sure when you're in there, you don't feel much like that, you know? And I couldn't imagine, I have a 16-year-old daughter, and I know how she felt about what I went through. And I couldn't imagine her being in a position where I had to support her in the decision that she felt like she had to make. That's, that, that's got to be the most difficult thing to really just process. And then to sit there as your 15-year-old self with the, the very limited life experience and understanding and wisdom that you would have that, I mean, again, I'm still learning and will continue to and have to be in that position. It's just, you know, I would encourage her you know, to stay fast and understanding that there is a, a, a victim in place, but there is, you know, as far as her father, but there, this is a young victim and the whole family was victimized and apparently for, oh, for years. And so now here you are with an entire family destroyed and it's just a super sad, heartbreaking situation. And I just feel that, you know, at 15, she shouldn't have been put in that position when there were outcries to police and restraining orders and things like that. That should have been taken seriously. And I can tell you from my own perspective that typically they're not taken seriously. And I remember a while back, a few years, when they made some changes to the restraining order process because of some of the things that wasn't taken seriously, but we're right back to it, where they're not, you know, enforced, there's not always not enough evidence, and people just don't get them. They're about as worthless as the paper that they're on, but just not having those things in place to be able to do, and you're having to run away and, you know, ask other adults, hey, help me. I mean, I couldn't imagine. You know what I mean? I couldn't imagine. So that in itself is just traumatic. Lisa, you work with the girls on Rikers Island, so your response to Brescia Meadows and what's, what's happening there? just blows my mind is how this system disposes of black and brown bodies, women and men. It's, we're just disposable, and our humanity is never seen. We're never seen as whole. We're never seen as children, mothers, fathers. We're seen as less than human that can be disposed of like, 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 like an animal. But when you look at somebody like Ethan Couch, who was this boy who killed four people, and he got 10 years probation for affluenza. 
that's when his attorney argued that he suffered from affluenza. He was from a family of so much affluence that he was unable to decide right from wrong or make make choices, and he served no prison time. And so you just have case after case where you see white men, white people getting off, getting no prison time. Look at Brock Turner. He was sentenced to six months, and he only served three months for sexual assaulting a woman behind a dumpster on a college campus. No prison time. The judge, Aaron Pesky, said that prison would be harmful to him. So their humanity is taken into account. Their possible exposure to trauma is being taken into account when they're being sentenced. But our children, our community, our women, our mothers, our fathers, our sons, our daughters, we're disposable in this system that profits from our destruction. Let's be very clear that this is all profit-driven. And this goes, this harkens back to slavery. So we're talking, and the separation of women, of, of, of um, mothers from their children, this harkens back to when women would give birth and the child would be sold to another plantation owner because we were not human. We're dealing with moral monsters. So for me, I have to really just wrap my mind around, okay, so how do we resist? How do we maintain our wholeness in the belly of America, which is morally decrepit and eats us and pursues us. So I've seen with the young women at Rikers Island, the adolescents, that the majority of them are coming into, well, first of all, coming to Rikers Island, coming into the central bookings is traumatizing in and of itself. But what they are carrying before they were even arrested was a history of trauma, a sexual assault. Many of them talk about it very casually because it's just a thing that they've learned to, I won't say normalize, but they've developed a coping mechanism. And the coping mechanism is very unhealthy, but this is how they have to move through the world and carrying this trauma. Many of them have been sexually assaulted or in prison for doing something or carrying a gun or being involved with a partner, and then they take the weight of their male counterpart. So this trauma... This untreated trauma and unrecognized trauma, that is violence. That is emotional violence. I'm traumatized. I'm in pain. I'm broken. I'm hurting. And now you're going to hurt me more with sentencing me to something that is a result of my wound, my pain, my trauma? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. No. We have to, as a community, figure out ways that we can love each other heal each other. So how can we inoculate ourselves from this poisonous virus?
that was our continuing discussion series, Reimagining Resistance in the World of Mass Incarceration in this Era of Number 45. You're listening to The Spin, a one hour weekly international all women of color podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Marissa Alexander, Asha Bandele, and Lisa Jesse Peterson. This spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5 and in London on ABN UK Radio. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on SoundCloud and iTunes. Ultimately, Brescia Meadows, just like Marissa Alexander, deserves to be free, to sing her own freedom song. Won't you hear to sing these songs of freedom? This all I ever had. Redemption songs, all I ever had. Redemption songs. Songs of freedom, songs of freedom. Part two on incarceration for our Reimagining Resistance discussion series. America is literally an incarceration nation. African-Americans make up 12 to 13% of the American population, but they make up 35% of the jail population and 37% of those in prison of the 2.2 million male prison population as of 2014. And that's according to the U.S. Department of Justice statistics from 2014. A brand new Oscar-nominated documentary called 13th charts the history of incarceration in America. It is directed by the award-winning African-American filmmaker, Ava DuVernay. Here's the trailer. One out of four human beings with their hands on bars, shackled in the world, are locked up here in the land of the free. Khalif Browder was walking home from a party when he was stopped by police. Then they said, we're gonna take you to the precinct and most likely we're gonna let you go home and then I never went home. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution makes it unconstitutional for someone to be held as a slave. There are exceptions, including criminals. The loophole was immediately exploited. What you got after that was a rapid transition to a mythology of black criminality. Some people got the real problem. Animals, beasts that needed to be controlled. You better believe it. I'm only human. It became virtually impossible for a politician to run and appear soft on crime. The kinds of kids that are called super predators. Millions of dollars will be allocated for prison and jail facilities. Three strikes and you are out. It was an enormous burden on the black community, but it also violated a sense of core fairness. Some people got the real problem. 
the states were required to keep these prisons filled, even if nobody was committing a crime. It's so difficult to talk about mass incarceration because it has become heavily monetized. The focus is on taking people from prison, putting them in community corrections, parole and probation. How much progress is it really if now there's a private company making money off the GPS monitor? We now have more African Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves back in the 1850s. We are the products of the history that our ancestors chose. Products of that set of choices that we have to understand in order to escape from it. According to the NAACP, African Americans constitute nearly one million of the total 2.3 million incarcerated population and have nearly six times the incarceration rate of whites. The 2000 census data shows that of all individuals incarcerated in the U.S., there is a wide racial disproportion of the incarcerated population in every single state. The proportion of black folk in prison populations exceeded the proportion among state residents in 20 different states. From images in the media to the profit from politics and prison, incarcerating black and brown men and women and children is a billion dollar business. But numbers don't tell stories. They don't help us understand that these are men and boys with dreams and families who love and cry and hurt, who are not always guilty, who are sometimes guilty, but who are caught in an unrepentant racist system where profit now rules. One example is Khalif Browder. He was a 16-year-old black boy who ended up on the notorious Rikers Island after being accused of stealing a backpack. He was held in solitary confinement. There was no trial. He was on Rikers for three years and the charges were dismissed. He came out broken and committed suicide. A documentary series on Khalif's life has been made and has been executive produced by hip-hop artist and mogul Jay-Z and the Weinstein Company. Take a listen to that trailer. Good evening. Good evening. Um, today is May 15, 2010. Uh, the time is now about 7.47 in the evening. I just need to get my story out. And you are Mr. Khalif Browder, is that correct? Yes. I was going home from a party. 911 operator 1719, where's emergency? Two male black guys, they took my brother book bag. There was a guy saying that I robbed him. They said, we're going to take you to the precinct. Did you rob somebody in the beginning part of May, Mr. No. Browder? No. The time is now 10 to 8. This interview is concluded. They said, most likely, we're going to let you go home. Rikers. One of the most violent jails Rikers in the Island. country. All right, all right. Look what it's doing. Stop resisting. But then... What's wrong with you, man? I never went home. Khalif is my son. I know what he went through. I went through a lot with him. I felt like I was done wrong. I felt like something needed to be done about this. If I just say that I did it, nothing's going to be done about it. I didn't do it. No justice is served. Nobody hears nothing at all. I had to fight. 
You want me to walk away like it's okay? It's not okay. I lost my childhood. I lost my happiness. They've destroyed my life, my family's life. This is supposed to be the greatest city in the world. We're supposed to trust in this justice system. Where's the justice? So let's talk incarceration, black and brown men and boys, and reimagining resistance in this era of number 45 and expanding incarceration. Ashan Badele, your thoughts. I think that when it comes to black children, I don't know that there has ever been a role for black children in America besides the role of being some kind of servant. Once slavery ended officially, I don't know that black children were imagined to be, you know, the form, the next leaders of, of this nation, especially in the post-Reconstruction era. So it doesn't surprise me, unfortunately, in knowing this system, that we would be looking at a Khalif Browder's death in horror now, just as in the 1970s, the first child I read about that began to politicize me was 10-year-old Clifford Glover, who was shot to death in New York by a white policeman who said, I didn't see his size or age or nothing, just the color of his skin. And so I, I want to go back to this idea that what we have to do every day is challenge the vulgar culture of punishment and hatred that is woven into the very Constitution of the United States, which Ava lifts up in her brilliant film, 13th, in which many of us who've been doing prison abolition work for three decades have been saying that there was always a reason, there always seems to be a reason to weave in punishment, never as much a reason to weave in restoration and healing. And if ever there was a moment that we needed to do that, we can begin in our own homes at all. And there's a different way that we can engage our children, that we can be different even if they won't be different. And when we choose to be different, when we choose to not embrace cultures of punishment and all of the after effects, the ways we talk to our children, if we say things like, say that again, I'm going to murder you, right? I'm going to beat the devil out of you, things that come directly out of the mouths of overseers, when we choose that, when we choose our children, when we choose ourselves, and every action that we take, where we buy our clothes, what kind of food we eat, how we engage one another across the aisle in church, whatever we do, when we choose that, we're going to be free. As long as we choose the tools that have been used to misdefine, to dehumanize, and to kill us, we're not going to win. And so it's our responsibility in this moment and in this hour when we couldn't be any more certain, right, in our lifetime that white supremacy is running the show, that at every single juncture we make no excuse for it, we act differently, we go to the best traditions and practices that come from our heritage and a heritage of love and of upholding and enlistment, and we reject every single other thing, every politician, every kind of bad food that makes us sick and crazy, and every kind of behavior that does too. What's interesting for me is, of course, when we think about the prison industrial complex, we specifically think about the United States. But in researching and reading about the issue for this show, I came across an amazing scholar called Julia Sudbury who wrote a piece called Selling Bodies, Black Women in the Global Prison Industrial Complex. And uh, she breaks down how the past 15 years have really witnessed a transformation from the PIC that we know in the US. It's become a global phenomenon. So multinational prison corporations, there's been an expansion and it's been an aggressive strategy of pursuing now foreign markets through marketing techniques, essentially. 
British politicians back in the 1980s were targeted, both Labour and Conservative, our equivalent of Republican Democrat. And they were invited to the United States for tours of these flagship private prisons. Now, Britain's penal estate at the time was decaying. And so they had this rhetoric of the, quote, new corrections, unquote, where apparently prisoners were called residents, prison guards were called supervisors, and cells were called rooms. Now, just before that, both sides of the House of Commons were actually opposed to prison privatization. And politicians there saw the denial of freedom was much too serious an issue to be entrusted to private interest that had a profit motive. But that, there was a whole sea change. And there was an all-party penal affairs group back in 1986. And the chair of that party penal group, his name was Sir Edward Garner, said, and I quote, We thought it was stunning. These places didn't feel like prisons and didn't smell like prisons. There was nothing we could find to criticize. So then in 1987, a Home Affairs Select Committee, they visited four adult and juvenile jails run by the Corrections Corporation of America and the Radio Corporation of America. And they then recommended that corporations should be invited into the United Kingdom to bid for contracts to build and manage prisons. Um, Part of that recommendation was that privatization would speed up the prison building program. So between 1991 and 1994, there was this mutually profitable relationship between conservative politicians in England and the prison industry. And then they created legislation that allowed the corporations to design, construct, manage and finance new prisons and to bid to operate the existing ones. It's both parties. 1997, New Labour comes to power. They talk a game about privatizing prisons being wrong but they actually continue the same thing. There was so much profit for the multinational prison corporations. They were producing revenues of over 95 million pounds for the five leading private incarcerators. That's Premier Prison Services, Wackenhut UK Limited, UK Detention Services, Securacore and Group 4. And I say all of that to say that we discuss the prison industrial complex within an American context and what it's become is this global Phenomena. Closing thoughts from you first, Lisa. Prison industrial complex is business. It's a money-making industry. And yes, it's global. And it's, I think that the global community is taking its orders or is taking its template from America. And if we just really understand that this country was founded on rapists, murderers, thieves, and crooks. It was a slave-breeding industry that was the fuel our Black women never had agency over our bodies. Our children were fuel, coal for this industry that made money. And now we're looking at the prison industrial complex. So we're looking at slavery remixed, slavery revisited. And we're dealing with the descendants of these rapists, murderers, thieves, and crooks who are still holding in place the immoral fabric of this country that is designed to make money off of our humanity. How do we inoculate ourselves from white supremacy? Well, with black love, because that is the kryptonite. And we have to resist, resist, resist. And part of that resistance is how do we love each other. Slavery's still alive, check Amendment 13. 
Not whips and chains are subliminal Instead of nigga, they use the word criminal Sweet land of liberty, incarcerated country Shot me with your ray gun and now you wanna trump me Prison is a business, America's the company Investing in injustice, fear and long suffering we staring in the face of hate again The same hate they say will make America great again No consolation prize for the dehumanized For America to rise is a matter of black lives And we gon' free them so we can free us America's moment to come to Jesus That's your hour Thank you to Asha Bandele, Lisa, Jesse Peterson and Marissa Alexander You can find information on their books and projects On the SPIN Facebook page Thanks ladies Thank you Thank you Thank you, Thank you. Hey. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Number 45, a discussion series on The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Arma. Everybody say policy, universal equality, responsibility, policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically, fruits of freedom, equality. Invest your money properly, people owe me your policy. Intellectual property, stealing, stolen commodities, souls controlling, robbery, cold, lack of commodity, clones, copycats, bother me, mine on black, that's follow me. Honestly, honesty, honesty, all these jokers, economy, puppets with no autonomy. Yup, it's spooky, the time. I see you looking, but you better take it easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy, take it easy, you better take it easy Too much ex-mommy, take it easy Good with the sex, you be like, take it easy This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.